Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss a common concern in the newborn nursery, jaundice, also known as hyperbilirubinemia. We're joined today by Dr. Jessica Morris, who's the medical director of the Parkland Newborn Nursery and a proud mom of two. Dr. Morris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So jaundice is one of the things we keep a close track of in the newborn nursery, so we thought it's important for all our listeners to understand it well. It's actually so important, and there's so much to talk about that we've broken it up into two episodes. So today we'll be discussing the history and pathophysiology of jaundice. Our next episode will address the clinical approach and management. So Dr. Morris, to start off with, please can you tell us a little bit about the history of jaundice and why we pay attention to it? So as everybody knows, um, hyperbilirubinemia, or jaundice, um, is... Um, caused by an elevated level of bilirubin in the blood. Bilirubin is a byproduct of um, hemoglobin when it gets, uh, or is a byproduct of hemoglobin breakdown from red blood cells. So when red red blood cells break down, it causes hemoglobin that then builds up in the blood, leading to what we call hyperbilirubinemia. The reason why we worry about hyperbilirubinemia in our neonates is that um, we know that high levels can um, accumulate in the basal ganglia, which leads to um, what we call bilirubin encephalopathy in the acute phase, and then what in the chronic phase is known as kernicterus, and that's probably the more familiar term that everybody knows about. Um, We know that historically, before the 1950s, kernicterus was very, very common um, that we've seen. Um, that was known, we had, there were high rates of it. Um, and this was most likely due to um, hemolytic RH incompatibility or RH hemolytic disease of the neonate. Um, but now with appropriate management, we're able to um, actually prevent this RH hemolytic disease of the neonate, as well as we're able to treat high levels of hyperbilirubinemia before it leads to this bilirubin encephalopathy. And stay tuned, we'll get into a little bit more detail about the RH incompatibility later in this episode. Um, But first, can you tell us a little bit about the natural history of jaundice in neonates? So every neonate has some small level of jaundice. Um, About two-thirds of the neonates will um, have a little bit more level, and then um, there are Um, And then a small percentage of that will go on to what we call um, pathologic jaundice or the actual need to where we need to intervene to treat their level of jaundice. Um, We typically know that um, the bilirubin slowly rises in the first few days. It'll peak about three to five days of life and then slowly decrease over the next two weeks of life. So when should I be worried if a baby's jaundiced? So we know that red flags are... Um, when jaundice develops, um, when significant jaundice develops in the first 24 hours of life. Um, we always say that um, jaundice in the first 24 hours of life is pathologic. It's not normal. Um, if there is a conjugated or a direct hyperbilirubinemia, or if you notice that the baby is jaundiced at over two weeks of age. Okay. So now that we understand a little bit more about the history of jaundice, let's get into the pathophysiology of it. Dr. Morris, I know when you teach med students about jaundice, you like to organize it into two classes, unconjugated or indirect versus conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia. So let's talk about the conjugated hyperbilirubinemia first. Can you walk me through um, what can cause this? Yeah, so a um, conjugated or a direct hyperbilirubinemia is actually 
very rare in our new in our neonates. It's, we typically don't see this very often, and when we do, it's often very concerning. Um, so something to note, whenever you do have a baby that has a significant hyperbilirubinemia, binemia, it is really important that you get not only a total bilirubin, um, but you also get a direct bilirubin. That way you can establish whether or not this is an unconjugated versus a conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, and also to get a nice baseline of that direct bilirubin um, should we need to monitor that in the future. Um, we do know that a direct bili, um abnormal levels um, vary from institution to institution, so you should make sure that you check what your institution's normal levels for a neonate are, um, and it can vary from lab to lab. So can a conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia ever be physiologic or normal? Um, no, it is never normal. And so with that, um, we know that it's very important to understand when we care for these babies why um, what we need to be thinking about when you discover a direct hyperbilirubinemia. Um, I think the most common thing that everybody tends to think of when they notice um, a direct hyperbilirubinemia or what they worry about when you notice that your infant has a direct hyperbilirubinemia is um, you worry about something called biliary atresia or a, it more commonly an obstruction somewhere in that biliary tree. Um, it could be caused by a stenosis, but again, the big thing that everybody worries about is the atresia when, that, um, when the biliary tree is atretic. Usually, we don't actually notice that our babies have a direct hyperbilirubinemia in the immediate postnatal period. Usually what happens is the direct bilirubin is going to rise over time. Again, that's really why it's important to get that baseline direct bilirubin whenever you are looking at a baby with hyperbilirubinemia. Um, and so usually um, we know that if we can diagnose, the earlier we can diagnose biliary atresia, the better. Um, if biliary atresia is left to its own devices, it definitely leads to liver disease, and eventually most of those neonates need um, a liver transplant. Um, we do know that better outcomes occur if, if, if we can do the Kasai procedure um, by at least seven weeks of age. Some other causes of a direct hyperbilirubinemia, and less, very less common, um, are other genetic causes that can lead to obstruction, uh, such as Dubin-Johnson or Rotor syndrome. Um, and it's also important to note that there are some metabolic causes of a direct hyperbilirubinemia. Um, hypothyroidism, which can be indirect, which can cause actually a direct or indirect, um, we think maybe leads to cholestasis, but the mechanism of which it causes this is really unclear. Um, and then galactosemia. Again, it's also important to note that that can be a direct or indirect hyperbilirubinemia. Um, and again, for galactosemia, the cause of how it leads to this is a little bit unclear, but it thought to be maybe due to conjugation that's inhibited by the metabolites. Again, very unclear as to how it leads to this, but something to be aware of. And then the last thing that you need to be aware of if you notice a direct hyperbilirubinemia in your neonate is that um, sepsis can also lead to this. So making sure that your baby's um, is appearing well, has normal vital signs, and then um, a CBC is within normal. Um, and also of note, um, CMV can also lead to a direct hyperbilirubinemia. Again, the mechanism by which that CMV can cause this is unclear. So that was a pretty thorough explanation of conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia. Um, so let's move on to indirect or unconjugated. So there are some times when this can be physiologic and sometimes it can be pathologic. Let's talk more about the physiologic causes of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. 
Yeah. So if you, if everyone remembers, um, when babies are in the womb, um, they are in a very low oxygen environment. We all know that, you know, as blood flows through the mom, the mom takes out all the oxygen that she needs first, and then um, whatever is left over is get passed to baby. Um, and because of this, baby is have our fetus has to have mechanisms by which to get as much oxygen out of that blood as possible. So to do this, babies have something called fetal hemoglobin, um, and then which has a higher affinity for oxygen, so it binds oxygen more readily, um, so that it can leach out as much oxygen as possible. Um, and then they also have um, more of it, so their hematocrits tend to be on the higher side in the 50s to 60s, whereas you or I would have a hematocrit usually in the 20s to 30s. Um, and also another thing, um, if you have more red blood cells um, total, then they break down. Then obviously you'll have more that gets broken down, which again, when red blood cells get broken down, it leads to increased levels of bilirubin. One of the other things that leads to physiologic jaundice is that infants have a very immature liver. And so um, this is due to um, increased reabsorption of bilirubin due to the um, decreased activity of the GDP or UDP, leucoronosyl transferase enzyme activity. Um, so in other words, the babies, uh, instead of excreting the bilirubin, it, they actually kind of hold on to it and it kind of gives this increased um, hepatic circulation of the um, bilirubin. And so obviously if you can't excrete it, the levels are going to continue to rise as more and more red blood cells get broken down. So in addition to regular physiologic jaundice, there are some causes that aren't necessarily pathologic, but aren't necessarily the typical physiologic jaundice. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about this? Absolutely. So this usually has to do with the way that babies eat, more specifically in breastfed babies. So there's something called breastfeeding jaundice, or as I like to um, refer to it as inadequate feeding jaundice. Um, So as you know, bilirubin is excreted um, in infant stool. And if you are not taking enough in, Um, then you can't really make enough stool for you to excrete the bilirubin. So, and why this occurs more specifically in breastfed infants is that um, in the early days, you know, mom produces something called colostrum. It's different than that mature milk that comes in in a few days. And what we think of it when we say to our med students or when we ask our moms, has your milk come in yet? Um, That's what we're referring to. Um, and so the colostrum is often a smaller quantity. It's, it's not as much volume. It does contain all of the nutrients, calories, things that infant, the infants need to grow and thrive in the first couple of days of life. However, the volume is not a lot. And so if they don't have a lot of volume, they don't make a lot of stool. And so they can't excrete out the stool, uh, excrete out the bilirubin um, in their stool. And so they tend to hold on to it longer, again, leading to what we call a breastfeeding jaundice or inadequate feeding jaundice. The other thing um, that is related to feeding or breast milk specifically is something called breast milk jaundice. This is where we think there is an enzyme in the breast milk, although it's not really fully fleshed out, um, that causes, and again, this intrahepatic circulation of the bilirubin. In other words, it doesn't get really excreted out. It kind of stays in the baby system. And this jaundice typically we see around the nine to 10 days of life or so. Um, Usually these babies will come into clinic for a follow-up visit. They'll be gaining weight. They'll be eating well. They'll be having adequate stools, adequate voids. Um, But the mom just notices that the baby is persistently jaundiced. 
you'll, te- you'll check a bilirubin level. It's usually in the 9 or 10 range. Um, not enough to where at that age you will need to do anything to treat the jaundice. It just persists. Um, eventually this will go away. It's just going to take a little bit longer for it to go away. And usually, you know, you don't need to change the baby to formula or add in formula. You don't need to change, um, you don't need to add water or anything like that into their diet. You just want to feed through and tell the mom to continue to breastfeed like she has been. Um, and eventually it will go away. So a lot of reassurance for the families at that point. Okay, that was a great explanation for our listeners. Um, So now that we understand why you might have normal unconjugated jaundice, let's talk about pathologic causes of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia in our neonates. So whenever I think of a pathologic cause, the first thing that comes to mind is hemolysis. Um, The two biggest things of hemolysis that we worry about is, number one, RH incompatibility, and then um, the other thing would be ABL incompatibility. So with RH incompatibility, usually you have a mom that has RH negative blood type and an infant that is RH positive. Somehow during the first pregnancy, whether it be early on um, in the pregnancy or or at the birthing process, um, mom becomes isoimmunized. In other words, she develops anti um, she develops antibodies against that RH positive or anti D antibodies against baby baby's blood type. And so what happens then is these antibodies attack baby's red blood cells and cause them to break down, increasing their levels of bilirubin. This typically becomes a problem in utero because these antibodies are IgG. So they therefore they cross the placenta. So these babies typically are very, very ill whenever they are delivered and typically will end up in the NICU. These are not our typical normal neonates that we will see in the newborn nursery. So they're caught, you know, and oftentimes, yes, they will be jaundiced at birth, but really what causes the most problems it begin, is when it begins in utero. What happens is these red blood cells get broken down in the baby when they are inside mom. Um, usually the bilirubin is not a problem because the mom's body actually will filter out that bilirubin but it's the anemia that is causes from the significant hemolysis that occurs. And this leads to something called hydrops or hydrops fatalis. There are ways that we can treat this. Number one is we give mom something, mom something called Rogam. Usually it's given to moms at 28 weeks or and after delivery, and then anytime she bleeds during a pregnancy. Why we typically don't see this nowadays is because of Rogam. It helps to prevent mom from creating these antibodies. However, we still do see it because oftentimes moms can become pregnant, not know that they are pregnant, and miscarry early on and become isoimmunized at that point. So typically, we do not see RH um, incompatibility in our infants until it's at a subsequent pregnancy. So usually not seen with first, but subsequent pregnancies. So now on to our ABO incompatibility. So ABO incompatibility is most commonly seen when mom has type O blood and, AB, and baby has type AB or AB blood type. Um, so, the, so usually moms who have type O blood have these naturally occurring IgG antibodies that are anti-A and anti-B. And in some, in, not, but not all moms who are at type O blood have these IgG antibodies. And it's unclear most of the time which moms do develop, do have these antibodies and which moms don't. These antibodies then, since they are IgG, will cross the placenta and into baby. So that when the babies are born, they can develop a, a significant hyperbilirubinemia that will need to be treated. 
it's not as significant as the what we see with RH incompatibility because these IgG anti-A or anti-B antibodies enter the fetal circulation um, from the mom, um, but they are on many different fetal cell types, leaving fewer antibodies available for binding onto fetal red blood cells, as well as that fetal red blood cells surface A and B antigens are not fully developed during gestation, and so there are a smaller number of antigenic sites for which this anti-A or anti-B um, IgG can bind to. So other, some other causes of hemolysis include um, cephalo- any of those babies that have cephalohematomas are bruising from delivery. These babies will have, you know, as you know, cephalohematoma and bruising are um, where blood is released. And so that blood has to get broken down. So it can cause a temporary increase in the bilirubin level. Um, another uh, pathologic cause Um, as we kind of talked about earlier, is whenever you have polycythemia or an increased number of red blood cells. Again, you can, if you have more of the red blood cells, more of them get broken down, which can cause an increase in your levels of bilirubin. We typically see polycythemia in our large for gestational um, age infants, our infants of diabetic mothers, and um, occasionally in our small for gestational age infants. So it's really important that you also check hematocrit or hemoglobin on those babies. Some other less common cause of hyperbilirubinemia, or I guess um, unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia in the infants are, um, you can again see it with some metabolic causes, which we talked about earlier, such as hypothyroidism. Again, to, just to remind you, it can cause both um, an either or both, an indirect or direct hyperbilirubinemia, um, and galactosemia. Again, this can cause a direct or indirect hyperbilirubinemia. There can also be... Um, some genetic causes. Again, these are very, very rare um, and typically um, not seen, but again, to keep in the back of your mind, especially when you have a neonate that has a significant hyperbilirubinemia that you don't have a really good explanation for. Um, So these can be Gilbert or Krigler-Najjar. And then again, you can also see um, some uh, increase in your bilirubin levels with G6PD syndrome. Um, Some other genetic causes that can lead to hemolysis include G6PD and hereditary spherocytosis. Both of these can lead to an increase in your bilirubin as those red blood cells are broken down. Again, these are more rare causes of a hyperbilirubinemia in the neonate. Of note, you you typically will not see a significant increase in your bilirubin with um, infants that have sickle cell or hemoglobin SC disease. This is due to the fact that they have fetal hemoglobin and this disease only affects adult hemoglobin. There can also be some iatrogenic causes, um, including some medications that you give, more specifically um, ceftriaxone, um, which we do have to give occasionally um, to our neonates, but something that you need to keep in the back of your mind as you prescribe these medications. Um, And then obviously, you must always keep in the back of your mind sepsis. So again, making sure that the neonate is well appearing, good vital signs. Okay. Um, Thanks so much for that really educational and thorough discussion. So for our listeners, now that you understand why babies get jaundice, make sure to stay tuned to our next episode so you can hear more about what to do about it. Dr. Morris, thanks for joining us today. To end the episode, do you have any tips for success for our listeners while they're taking care of newborns? So newborns are a lot of fun, and they typically are well until they're not. So make sure that you pay close attention whenever you are examining them. Great advice. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Morse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. 
If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.